The Bible reading for this morning is starting in John chapter 2, verse 23. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible in front of you, um, the numbers may be different to what I have, so it's approximately one-sixth from the end, uh, or if you like a little bit more of a precise, there should be some form of a table of contents in the front of your Bible. Mine is kind of separated out, so it doesn't look like your typical table of contents. starting in chapter 2, verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Thanks, Sharon. Good morning. Great to see all of you here on a holiday weekend. Uh, before I dive into that text, I just want to say, please join me in welcoming Adam and Michelle Darbone. How awesome is it? It was a tremendous honor to have them join us here. 
I am fortunate in that in the last couple of years, I've had the experience of being where they are now and receiving all of your warm welcome and generosity. When you see them, go out of your way to welcome them, to give them a tip about how to adjust to life in Madison, to ask them what they need, uh, to tell them that you're praying for them and for their kids as they make this massive life adjustment. I know what it's like to come from another place, another culture, to back to the Midwest, and however excited Adam and Michelle are, it's a culture shift like that, it always kind of feels like you're walking on the deck of a ship in heavy seas and things are just gonna be pitching five to 15 degrees one way or the other for a little while. Uh, so really do remember them in your prayers. Also, they are not the only new people to this church. It's pretty common that uh, in a church like ours, in a city like Madison, we have a relatively high rate of turnover. Not, not because people are unhappy with us, but just because we're a city where people come to work here for a few years and then move on. Or we're a seat of government, so people are kind of filtering in and filtering out. We're a university town, a college town, so people will be here for between you know, four to six years for their degrees before they move on to the next thing that God has for them. And if you are a new person here, and it feels a little bit overwhelming to become a part of sort of a large congregation. Maybe you've never been a part of a church this large before and it's just not intuitive how you should make your way into the congregation. One of the best ways to do it is to fill out that connect card that Adam mentioned and then say that you would be interested in joining a small group. Small groups are uh, groups of usually between like four and on the really large end, 10 who get together throughout the week to talk about the Bible, to talk about the sermon, to pray together, to share what's going on in each other's lives, get to know each other, and to really build that sort of spiritual community, those deep Christian relationships that it's, it's hard to accomplish on a Sunday morning. But in order for that to happen, we need one thing. We need a few people who would be willing to serve as small group leaders in their own right. So if there are some of you, especially those of you who maybe have been just attending faithfully small groups for the last couple of years, you got a sense of how the rhythms of small group ebb and flow, and you'd be willing to step up and facilitate. I'm not asking you to make a commitment here today, um, although the next time I preach, if I don't get enough of you, I will make you raise your hands and come to the altar. <laughs> but if you'd be interested and willing to at least talk with me about it, please shoot me an email, dwhite at highpointchurch.org. Love to connect with you. You please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came and that you, when you came, you came from heaven to tell us what it was really like in the presence of God, about who God really is and what your Father's desire is for the whole world. Lord, uh, I know that many of us come in here today kind of in the place that Nicodemus was. We're intrigued by you, but we don't really have a full grasp of who you are. Maybe sometimes there are things going on in our life that obscure our vision. Sometimes there are big questions that just won't leave us alone. But uh, Lord, I thank you that you came anyway and that you, you meet us at our point of need and that you speak to us and that you challenge us. But please, Lord God, do come today and be yourself the teacher. Be the teacher that we need. Uh, in this room, there are so many needs. In this room, there are so many questions. There are more than I could conceive. They're beyond my capacity to answer, but they're not beyond yours. So, uh, Lord, let your word come to life in the hearts of the people here who are listening today who have come not to hear from a, just a guy standing behind a podium, but who really need to hear a word from God.
That's what I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. When I think over the last few years of my life, some of the memories that stick in my head the most powerfully and poignantly are the memories that I have of reading and talking to my kids before they were born. When they're still, my daughter right now talks about how great it'll be one day when she has a baby in her belly. Um, so when my daughter and my son were still in utero, you know, my, some of you know my story and my wife's story. We, we've lived through a lot of pregnancy loss, and I know that there are a lot of folks in this congregation who have also very recently been experiencing and walking through the difficulty of pregnancy loss. But for my wife and I, because of our history of loss, those moments of being able just to know that we were so close to the end of pregnancy and that my kids were there, and that I could speak to them and address them and that uh, whatever it was like, they could hear me a little bit, right? I mean, every, this is what all the experts tell you, that there is still some degree of perception for a kid who's still in the womb and sometimes they can like feel you when you touch and they can hear you when you speak. And so I, I just remember lying there in bed next to my wife sometimes just reading a book out loud. And then I would try to do that mental exercise of putting myself in the position of where my unborn kids were and trying to figure out what it would be like to hear my voice or my wife's voice coming through to them while they're still in the womb. And when I, when I would go through that exercise, I would know that whatever they were hearing and experiencing while they were still in the womb was not the same thing that they were going to experience after their delivery and entry into the world. There was some degree of continuity, right? I mean, the sounds that were coming to them from my voice were coming to them almost from another world and entering their ears and you know, resonating with them. But they didn't, they didn't really know what I sounded like. It was, it was all muffled, it was hazy. That is basically the position that Nicodemus is in and that frankly a lot of us are in. This story, the, the one that Sharon just read for us, the end of John 2 into John chapter 3, it contains some of the most famous verses, some of the most widely recognized sentences in the whole Bible, right? Like, phrases like, you must be born again. Phrases like, for God so loved the world that he gave. If we still had the kids here, how many of them could repeat and complete those sentences if all I did was give them a few words, right? Many of us, especially those of us who grew up in and around the church, we know that stuff cold. So when we hear John chapter two and John chapter three read to us, we have some intuitive sense of what the sermon is supposed to be about, right? Jesus, his desire to save us, his going to the cross for us, that's all in there. But when we focus first on the things that Jesus says and we miss the narrative setting, of what Jesus is saying, we miss a really, really, really important point. Jesus is wicked confusing. <laughs> so confusing, so difficult. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus, and if you follow Nicodemus through from start to finish, you just get the sense that he has no idea what's going on, and frankly, I can't blame him. So what we're going to do today is, for, I'm just going to take a couple minutes, I'm going to walk through this story twice. First from Nicodemus' perspective, second from Jesus' perspective. What do they think is going on in this sort of like two-person play that we get to be a, a little fly on the wall and observe? 
Then we're gonna talk about what it's like when we find Jesus to be particularly confusing at various points of our Christian life and why he's confusing. And then we're gonna talk about what to do with it. When you feel confused in your faith, when you feel like you've just been pushing on, on the door and it won't open, when you feel like the, dis- the degree of suffering that you're experiencing doesn't really seem compatible with what the Bible says about a Christian life, or, or when you have genuine questions about whether what you believe is true or not. All right, we'll save that for the end of the sermon before I go there. Let's just start with Nicodemus. If you have ever in your life just turned your face to heaven and said, oh God, what on earth are you doing? Like this is the story for you. This is the place to start. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus has just been speaking to a bunch of crowds and like John tells us, a bunch of the members of these crowds are seeing the signs that Jesus is doing and they believe in him. I mean, ish, right? I mean, if you were to go back a couple, a couple sermons ago when, when Nick talked about that passage, he said that there's a distinction here, that it's, it's not important just to believe in Jesus. It's, also, it's really kind of important to believe in Jesus in such a way that Jesus also believes in you. Because these are the crowds who are believing in Jesus, but Jesus isn't, quote, entrusting himself to any of them, right? Because he knows what's really in a person. And the verb there, to entrust, is actually the verb to believe. So they're believing in Jesus, but we're supposed to understand that that's a belief in some sort of like scare quotes because Jesus isn't believing in them in return because he knows what's really going on. And in that context, when Jesus is being mobbed by crowds who think he's awesome, but who Jesus knows don't really understand what's going on, that's when Nicodemus shows up. So Nicodemus, Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's a really important public figure. He's gonna pop up a couple more times in the gospel. And one of the times when he does pop up in the gospel is in chapter seven, when he's talking to the Sanhedrin, like the ruling council of Jewish religious authorities. And so we know that Nicodemus is a guy accustomed to power, accustomed to prestige. Jesus in this passage calls him the teacher of Israel. So he's an expert in the law. Think of him as like, I don't know, I'm the equivalent of a bishop or something if low church Protestants like us had bishops. I mean, it, it's kind of hard, hard to come up with an equivalent religious authority for our sort of church structure. But that's Nicodemus. He's a, he's a ruler and he comes to Jesus. He sneaks out to him at night. And he, he thinks he's doing something super brave. He's taking a risk. I mean, there's, none of the rest of the members of the Sanhedrin are coming to see Jesus. Everyone else is a little bit nervous about Jesus. They think he's kind of sketchy. They think he's kind of dangerous. He's someone who's gonna come and upset the apple cart. But Nicodemus has seen Jesus do enough that he's like, yeah, I'm gonna take a shot at this. I'm gonna go meet this guy. So he's, you know, picture him like every single sort of like stealth sneaky movie you've ever seen. You know, he puts on, puts on dark clothes, baseball hats, sunglasses, and he's, he's just kind of ducking and weaving through the streets of Jerusalem until he comes to where Jesus is. And then the first thing he does is he's like, Jesus, I think you're really important. There is no way that you could do the signs that you're doing unless God were with you. So you must be a teacher who has come to us from God. He thinks he's complimenting Jesus. He's, he's basically kind of offering to quote, in our terms, platform Jesus. He's like, you are significant. I see something in you. Can I help grease the skids for you? Can I help make a way into, like, give you some access to power? Maybe we can launch you a website podcast. 
Nicodemus is making what he thinks is kind of an important business connection for Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Blows right past him, says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't see the kingdom of heaven. You have to be born of water and spirit. And Nicodemus is, have you ever had those conversations where you feel like you and the other person are talking about two different things? That's what's going on for Nicodemus right now. He's like, I didn't ask about being born again. And by the way, that's stupid. How can anybody be born again? I mean, he's a little more polite about it than that. But he's like, he phrases it as a question, but he knows that it's logically impossible to enter into your mother's womb and be born a second time, right? His question, how is that possible? It shows that he's already feeling a little bit lost at sea in this whole encounter. (laughs) Jesus, I don't really think you understand what I'm offering you here. So really the most that we can say about Nicodemus in this passage and later is that he, he's a rare person in a position of power in the Gospel of John who, who is willing to take some risk to get to know Jesus and who never quite totally loses interest in Jesus. He's still willing to, to speak up a little bit on his behalf in John chapter seven in the Sanhedrin and in chapter 19 after the crucifixion of Jesus, Nicodemus is the one who provides an awful lot of spices to help bury Jesus, right? But there's some sort of perception gap that's separating Nicodemus from Jesus and Jesus from Nicodemus, and Nicodemus doesn't really, really know what, what to make of it. Okay, so that's Nicodemus' perspective. This guy's got something going on, but when you start talking to him, you decide that maybe you're better off just observing from a distance. What about from Jesus' perspective? Jesus knows that there are lots of people who have been semi-believing in him because of the signs that he's been doing, but he's not entrusting himself to any of them. This is one of those fulfillments of that great verse from the prologue, verses one to 18 of chapter one, where John tells us that Jesus came to his own, came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. Jesus knows that he's not really being received. So when Nicodemus comes to him for the same reason that the crowds have been flocking to him, he's been seeing these signs and has been trying to figure out for himself what these signs tell him about who Jesus is, Jesus is holding at a distance. Jesus knows everything about the person without needing to be told, so he actually knows where Nicodemus is. Whatever Nicodemus thinks is going on, Jesus knows far more. And right from the get-go, from Jesus' perspective, you gotta feel like he wants to give Nicodemus a pat on the back. Like, Nicodemus cares, Nicodemus is trying, but it's a big swing and a miss. When he hears, we know that you're a teacher who's come to us from God. Jesus must be sitting going, eh, no. No, Jesus is not the teacher who has come to Nicodemus from God. Jesus is the word, God himself. Jesus isn't just relying on God to to serve as one of sort of the prophets of Israel did. Jesus has come as God to Nicodemus. Close but no cigar. So how does Jesus respond when Nicodemus comes to him? And Nicodemus is clearly interested, right? Nicodemus really is interested and wants to understand. You would think, if it were me, if I were Jesus, that I would probably try to meet Nicodemus where he is and work with him to get him up to my level of understanding. 
I'd meet with him with like the teacher come from God thing. And I'd start talking to him about what it means to be a teacher who's come from God. And then say, well, hang on a second. If I'm just a teacher who's come from God, why not this, 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 and this? And kind of lead him gradually up to help him see who I really am. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does not make it easy on Nicodemus. He goes again, unless you are born again, and there, the Greek again means both a second time and from above, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You need to be born of water and spirit. And it's gotta feel like, he's gotta feel like he's kind of stiff-arming Nicodemus, right? He's, He's trying to radically reframe Nicodemus's own question. Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of heaven, which is, Nicodemus didn't come asking about the kingdom of heaven. What's going on here? Now, the reason I start with this, just by juxtaposing the the two perspectives and the two experiences of Jesus and Nicodemus in this text, is I I think it's really, really helpful first because at some level all of us are Nicodemus at some point both prior to our conversion and after. This this text isn't just about conversion, even if it is a passage that we rightly reference a lot when we talk about what it's like to come to faith in Jesus, experience new life in Jesus, be forgiven of sins. All that's true, but the spiritual dynamics here apply to all of us even after our conversion. And all of us at some point, and probably many of us today, even those of us who are baptized, at some point in our life feel like Nicodemus coming to Jesus because we think we understand who he is and how he's supposed to relate to us, and we feel like he's stiff-arming us. We are totally confused. The good news is that's okay. It's even a good thing, and we're gonna see why. But also, the reason we're gonna see why is because it's rooted in the character and identity of Jesus, who he is and what he wants us to know about him, about his father, about life in the kingdom. When Jesus confuses you, when Jesus confuses me, when Jesus confuses us, he is not doing it to be mean. He's not doing it to be cruel. He's not doing it to just because he likes to watch us flounder in our ignorance. He's doing it because he's inviting us into a reality, the kingdom of heaven, that we frankly have no frame of reference for. We wouldn't be able to contain it even if we really tried very hard. Um, I, I would say that when I get the chance to sit down and talk with Christians one-on-one, a lot of folks in this church, when, when I get to do like what we kind of call counseling appointments, but I just mostly think of as spiritual conversations, I would say that at least 40% of the time, at least 40% of the time, what starts the conversation is somebody who wants to talk with me because they are confused about something in their spiritual life. Sometimes they're, they're confused about how to interpret their experience as a Christian because it doesn't seem to be lining up with what they think the Bible says about it and they just want to be able to circle that square. Sometimes, especially at this church, people are actually trying to think through what you could call Christian doctrine or theology and I don't know how many of you have ever tried to think through Christian doctrine or theology but it's not intuitive most of the time. It's really confusing, very difficult. And that will weigh on people if, they, if, if very rightly you think that you need to know the truth because the truth is gonna make you free. And then you go and you dedicate yourself to trying to understand the truth and you find that you feel more lost after trying to understand the truth than you did before, that can mess with your understanding of your faith and of God. This is a normal feature of the Christian life and it's a normal feature of Christian ministry to get to meet with people when they're at that place. 
So, if you today are feeling the pinch somewhere, it's very tempting to just try and answer the questions. Very, very tempting just to get yourself to that, that place of mental or emotional peace. But remember, I'm, I'm just gonna say this, uh, but before I get back to this text, but just remember that you are in super good spiritual company. Remember how confused Peter was when he has the vision of that, that sheet that drops down and it's full of all sorts of unclean animals and the voice says, you know, arise Peter, kill and eat. It has to happen three times and even at the end of it, Peter has no idea what's going on, right? Confusion doesn't make you a bad Christian. And this really is the pivotal point, just to come back to the Gospel of John, this is the pivotal point here. Chapter three, verse three, Nicodemus has complimented Jesus. He thinks he's gonna get to know Jesus, and suddenly Jesus just blows past him and starts talking about being born again. And he says that unless you are born again a second time from above, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, I really, really want to do a whole sermon just on the distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. The Gospel of John actually doesn't say a ton about the kingdom, only references the kingdom three times compared to a gospel like Matthew where it's like every other line, it's something like 60 plus times in the gospel of Matthew. But even when the gospel of John doesn't say a ton about the kingdom, it says a lot about the king. In John chapter 18, Jesus says that his kingdom is not a kingdom of this age, of this world system, Greek, this ion. And it's clear that Jesus is also the king of Israel. In chapter 12, again, Jesus is, uh, he quotes from the prophet Zechariah, right? Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So Jesus clearly understands himself as a king, and he sees his kingdom as continuous with what's happening in Israel, but as somehow more, as somehow, it's not just another kingdom. So what is the kingdom? If we get one hint in chapter three, it's this. It's that the kingdom of God is God's plan to save the world. 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The whole of creation, including human beings, right? The gospel is not just the message of individual salvation for people to get saved away from the world. God, the creator of the world, everything that you see in nature, has a plan to renew it and restore it, to swallow up the covering of death that makes our lives so full of trauma and pain and sorrow, to deal once and for all with the sin that produces the death. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's that time when, I mean, it's, it's almost like watching the tide come in. I mean, if the sand on the seashore was the kingdom of this age, suddenly the tide of God's justice and love and goodness just comes in and sweeps away and covers over Everything that was before, everything that was dry and barren is now just submerged and suffused in this, like these billows of life. That's what I think of when I think about the kingdom of God coming, and that's what Jesus has in mind. Okay, if that's the kingdom of God, in a nutshell, then here's the catch. Jesus says that nobody can see it without God's help. Think about verse three, again, uh, verse three again. Unless you are born again, you cannot, quote, see the kingdom of God. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, when John talks about sight, 
he's usually talking not just about seeing something with your physical eyes, he's talking about understanding something, like understanding it cognitively, conceptually, deep in your heart, grasping it. Uh, One of the most important passages in this regard is John chapter 12, 37 to 43, and Jesus, he's, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, And this is after he's done even more signs. And the conclusion is that even after Jesus has performed so many signs in the presence of the crowds, in the presence of the Sanhedrin, and everybody who were looking, quote, they still would not believe in him. And this was to fulfill the word of the prophet Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And now I'm in uh, 1239. For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, Quote, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many among the leaders did believe in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. That's a really important and super confusing prophecy about Jesus' ministry. That Isaiah looks ahead in time, sees Jesus' ministry, and says, God incarnate is going to come. Nobody will believe him, or not many. Who has believed our message? And on top of that, he even goes on and says that God himself has deadened the minds and the hearts of the people that Jesus is speaking to so that they can't really perceive what Jesus is saying. They can see but not see. They can hear but not understand. Now put yourself back in Nicodemus' shoes. Why do you think then that Nicodemus can't really understand what Jesus has to say? It's because at some level, the truth of Jesus' words are just so beyond him and so hidden from him that he can't grasp them on his own. It's almost like there's even divine power, God himself working against Nicodemus, (laughs) blinding him so that his mind and his heart can't grasp the truth of the gospel, the truth of his need to be born again. And the point that John is making here by correlating that lack of confusion, or sorry, that, that lack of comprehension with the kingdom of heaven, like needing to enter into the kingdom of heaven, is that Nicodemus, like all of us, have had our senses acclimated to the, quote, kingdom of the world, not the kingdom of heaven. I'm tempted to do like a whole lecture here on hermeneutics and epistemology. I'm not gonna do that. Just, just think for a second about that old famous image of a bunch of blind folks touching an elephant, right? And everybody de- determines what they think it is based on where they are relative to the elephant. So it's like the person who can touch the trunk thinks it's a snake and you know the person who can touch the left hind quarter thinks it's a cow or something. All of us have our senses acclimated to the kingdom of this world, and none of us have our eyes open so that we can totally see and perceive the whole of God's nature and plan. We'd love to, but we just don't have the power in ourselves, and that is why Jesus says you must be born again. You actually need some help because you don't have a view from nowhere on this thing that will let you comprehend the whole, but God does. 
God does see the whole. God does understand the whole. And even if God is the one who for a time has made it impossible for you in your own power to move beyond that state of confusion, to figure out, okay, what is, it, what is actually happening in front of me right now when I see Jesus do what he's doing? If Jesus, if Jesus is doing something real and you want to know what it is, but you're confused and you can't even figure out why you're confused, one answer is because God has decided in his providential wisdom that our minds, our hearts, are not going to be the organs of thought, the organs of sense that let us figure out who Jesus really is. No, we need to be born again in the same way that when my kids were still in the womb and I was speaking to them, they could hear me. They could perceive me, but they didn't really grasp the fullness of what was waiting for them after their birth into the whole wide world when their eyes would be open for the first time and their ears would hear without any confusion or obstruction. That's what's waiting for Nicodemus. So what do you do when you're confused? If Jesus is inviting you someplace good, if Jesus is even telling you that you're gonna to need to be born again to get there, and you're kind of confused about it all, but you're like, sure, great, I'm willing to give this a shot. What do you do, especially as a believer, if you're feeling a little bit confused? You're not sure what you should believe and why. You're not exactly sure what's going on with this whole like baptism thing or communion or why you should be reading your Bible that much or prayer. You're not certain why, even though you've been trying to live a good Christian life for decades, some things just don't seem to be working out. Some things just don't seem to be fun. You find yourself feeling kind of like alone or lonely and you're like, well, I thought I was joining the people of God. What's going on here? The first thing to remember is that we don't always have the frame of reference that we need to make sense of, going, of what's going on in our spiritual lives. I mean, one of my favorite stories about my wife's history from before she met me was she was serving at a YWAM base in Tanzania. She was serving at a YWAM base in Tanzania. Uh, it was an orphanage. And over the course of her months there, getting to know the kids, in order to keep the orphanage working, they would have to just do the daily chores that you would normally need to do to operate a household. Somebody's got to do the cooking. Somebody's got to do the cleaning. Somebody's got to make sure that uh, the groceries are there, whatnot. Anyway, one day, she and some of the kids are washing dishes. And she starts to explain to these kids that where she grew up, there are these things called dishwashers. There's things called dishwashers that you can plug into the wall and you can just put your dirty dishes inside them and close it up and like hit power and they come out clean. And so these kids are listening to her until finally one of them can't take it anymore. And he just looks at her and says, Miss Jory, you lie. I mean, imagine that, a, a magic box that you can put dirty dishes in and they just come out clean. Yeah, funny, right? Now, everything in that little boy's experience taught him that that was a silly idea. There was nothing, like household appliances were not a part of his normal life, right? He'd been acclimated and acculturated into a world where you did that stuff by hand. And it got done, but everything else just gets, probably sounded like magic, right? When we encounter Jesus and he starts telling us things that we don't understand, that confusion 
That sense of kind of lostness, that sense of like what is actually going on here is him inviting us into a deeper truth. It's him inviting us into the kingdom of heaven. So to get there, I would say that this text shows us at least three things we've gotta do. I mean, the first one is just listen. Like, open your ears and shut your mouth and actually listen. This is the hard one for me, personally, because I'm usually convinced that I see the world as it is and I don't need anybody to reframe it for me. But what Jesus says in verses 11 and 12 is that he is testifying to us of what he has seen, but that all those people out there do not accept his testimony. And he says to Nicodemus, if I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe, how then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? Remember that right now, we are basically all of us in the same position as that little boy in a Tanzanian orphanage, where we have been so conditioned and acclimated to the kingdom of the world that when Jesus comes and starts telling us the truth about the kingdom of heaven, it sounds absolutely ridiculous sometimes. We, we do not naturally grasp it. But we have to at least start to grapple with the concepts, with the ideas, with the promises that Jesus is making to us. Imagine, let yourself imagine what the spiritual equivalent of that dishwasher would be. You've never seen one, but somebody that you should love and trust at this point tells you that it's real and that it works. I love it. What God says is that what no eye has seen and no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, that those are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. If those are the things that we are going to hear from our Lord, we have to be willing to listen even when they blow our minds. So once we've heard what Jesus has to say, then the next step is we have to believe. Like we actually have to accept Jesus' testimony because that's what Jesus is doing. He's testifying to us about what the kingdom of heaven really is, about who his father is, about who he is. He says nobody has ascended into heaven except the son of man, right? So as the son of man who has come down and is addressing us, when he speaks to us about what the kingdom of heaven is really gonna be like, he's the only one qualified to do it. And so we should accept his testimony and believe. This requires just incredible humility on our part. We have to admit the limitations of our own perspective. This requires ridiculous degrees of trust and confidence because if you're actually going to let somebody tell you something that you have no frame of reference for and you're gonna actually order your life according to what they've told you even though you can't verify it up here, even though you can't go and do research and find out that it's plausible, You have to believe at the end of the day. Now, that sounds what's like what some people would just call fideism. That sounds like some people would say, I'm telling you to just check your brain at the door, that it's not important. It's actually kind of necessary, but part, part of being a rational human being is acknowledging our limitations and our need for other people's expertise and testimony that goes beyond what we can accomplish for ourselves. So uh, for, to give just one simple example, a few nights ago, my carbon monoxide detector went off. It was after my kids were asleep, it was super inconvenient, I was really annoyed, but it was my carbon monoxide detector and my toddlers are sleeping in this house. So what am I gonna do? I mean, I can't smell carbon monoxide, and because I'm a parent of toddlers, I don't know if the physical symptoms I'm feeling are carbon monoxide poisoning or parenting. <laughs> so, I get on the phone and I, and I call the fire department, right? I have to know my limits. 
I have to know that there might actually be this thing that I can't see or touch or taste, but that's actually really, really powerful. And I have to believe that when the fire department comes with their super expensive gear that, I don't know, it just looks like a little glow stick of destiny that tells you whether there's carbon monoxide or not, that they're actually gonna tell me the truth about what they can perceive that I can't. We all do this all the time. At the end of the day, it boils down to this. Not whether you're just gonna totally check your brain at the door, but who you're going to cognitively decide to trust enough. And this is why one thing that Nick keeps saying in this series is that what you, choose to be- what you choose to believe and what you choose to believe about Jesus might be the most important thing about you, right? Okay, so if you've listened to what Jesus has to say, if you decided I'm even going to believe what Jesus has to say, the next thing that you have to do is what Jesus says you should do and rely on the Holy Spirit. You cannot see, that is comprehend, know the kingdom of God unless the Spirit lets us see it. What Jesus says in John chapter 16 is that it's good for all of us the disciples to the present day, that he goes away, that after his death, after his resurrection, he returns to the Father. Why? Because he's going to send us the Holy Spirit, and it will be the job of the Holy Spirit to lead all of us, all of the church, into all truth. When Jesus presents us with confusing information, he doesn't do it just because he wants to watch us fall flat on our faces. He's also providing us the power that we need for life and godliness. And part of that power for life and godliness is the Holy Spirit who leads us out of confusion and into knowledge of the truth. I mean, for me in my life, when I think back over the last 20 plus years, I know that one of the sources of real confusion that proved to be generative for me was when I was a young person and I knew that the Bible was supposed to be really important because my church told me that it was really important. They're like, this is really important. You should read this all the time. I'm like, okay, I'll go do that. But then when I read it all the time and I went back to them and said, so why am I doing this again? They said, this is really important. You should do this all the time. And I, I could never get an answer to the why. Like, what, what actually is it about the Bible that makes it different than the Declaration of Independence or whatever? I mean, name your favorite book. And what I didn't know at the time was that that question wasn't me being just a pretentious teenager, although I'm sure some of my pastors thought so, and that question wasn't the devil trying to trip me up and steal my faith. That question was God provoking me to come to a deeper understanding of who he was and how he works and how he speaks to me so that over the course of years, as I pursued that question prayerfully and in conversation with other Christians who are better Christians than me, eventually I got to see why the Bible is special. I mean, I'll spare you the whole story right now, but now I know that when I open the Bible, what I'm reading are words produced by human beings centuries ago and places far, 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 far away. But a lot of other books are like that too. But this is where the Bible is different. I also know now that every word that's in there is God also speaking in, with, and through those human authors to directly address me and all the church. That when you and I gather together to listen to the word of God read and taught, we are actually hearing the voice of God directly addressing us. And that's what makes the Bible special and that's why I'm supposed to read it because it's not just a book of wisdom. It's not just like good ideas that Christians had a long time ago or that Israelites had a long time ago. It's that it's always fresh. It's always new. It's always the creative, active, powerful word of God coming to me. 
I wouldn't have got there if God hadn't confused me first, if he hadn't started with a really tough question that people were annoyed that I had to ask. So if that's you today and you're grappling with these big, tough questions, see it as an invitation, not as a threat. At the end of the day, I mean, what we are is children still in the womb, still in the process of being born, still waiting to enter into the kingdom of heaven in the same way that my kids, when they were in the womb, were waiting to enter into the reality of our world. A bigger, brighter, louder, more exciting world where the degree of reality is just orders of magnitude more complex than anything they could have a frame of reference for from in the womb. That is what the kingdom of heaven is to where you and I are now, but the word of God is coming to us. We can hear Jesus' voice coming to us from where we are now, and he's speaking to us about what's waiting for us out there. He's inviting us to it. It's outside our frame. It's outside our worldview, but it's good and it's true. If we want to be Jesus' disciples, we're going to have to come to the light and hear him speaking the truth. And that means that we're going to have to be okay with being confused. Will you join me in prayer? Lord God, I thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. Uh, Lord, I thank you that the truth that you bring is truth about a newer and a better and a wilder country than we have any frame of reference for. So Lord God, when, when you do speak to us and you tell us things that sound absolutely bizarre, when you tell us to do things with our money that don't make sense in light of what we know about the world, when you tell us to do things with our bodies that just seem out of, completely out of alignment with everything we think is natural, Lord, when you tell us how to invest our time and we say to ourselves, but that will mean sacrificing everything that seems important for my career. Lord, help us to lean into the confusion, trusting you that you're, you're not just messing with us to make us suffer, but you're inviting us into something that's so much better, so much truer, so much purer. Uh, Lord, help us to follow you courageously where you lead, knowing that you are our king and knowing that everything you say is for your glory and our good. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.